You're listening to Snyder & Associates podcast series, the civil engineering, planning, and design firm focused on thinking beyond engineering to improve the quality of life within the communities we serve. This episode's host is Patrick Williams. My name is Patrick Williams. I am a civil engineer at Snyder & Associates in Cedar Rapids. During my time at Snyder & Associates, I've worked on a lot of different projects from wastewater treatment plants, water treatment plants, large diameter sanitary sewers, and water main distribution systems. One of the more interesting aspects of my job has been helping operators with their biosolids management reports they have to submit every year. The purpose of my presentation today is to get everybody a little bit more familiar with some of the regulations with biosolids and land application. Helping operators with the report, I noticed a lot of people didn't have the full view of what all the laws and regulations were with biosolids and land application. So. The purpose of this report is to help everybody get more familiar with those. Biosolids are essentially human waste that we repurpose to help plants grow. It's a fertilizer. They come from wastewater treatment plants. When wastewater enters a wastewater treatment plant, it is processed. And through those processes, there's a lot of different types. Solids are generated and we can repurpose those in many different ways. I want to go into a little bit of the history of why biosolids are heavily regulated. In 1973, the EPA established the Clean Water Act. The Clean Water Act established the basic structure for regulating pollutant discharges into the waters of the United States. In 1988, the Ocean Dumping Ban Act was established, and that banned all wastewater disposal of biosolids into the ocean. So after 1988, you can no longer dump your biosolids into the ocean. You could either land apply it or landfill the biosolids. In 1993, they amended the Clean Water Act and established Section 405, Permits for Sludge Management, and set the groundwork for regulating sewage sludge. And soon after that, the Part 503 rule, basically the entire federal law of how sewage sludge has to be regulated, if you do manage sewage sludge at your wastewater plant, I highly recommend familiarizing yourself with this rule because it's very important to know what you can and cannot do. In 2016, they recorded 7.1 million dry tons of sewage sludge being used or disposed of annually in the United States alone, and 47% of that was land applied. When I started my career as a civil engineer, they established the NET NPDES e-reporting tool. I know everybody's used to the paper copies, but when I started, that's all I was familiar with. So. I've helped operators work through the NET NPDES e-reporting tool and helped them submit their reports correctly. After the second year it was established, 96.5% of all biosolids report were submitted electronically. The three main disposal options for sewage sludge are land application, landfilling, and incineration. I'm gonna go through all three, but primarily I'm gonna talk about the land application of biosolids, but I just want everyone to be familiar that there are other options available to dispose of your sewage sludge. So the first method for disposal of sewage sludge I'm gonna talk about is incineration. Incineration is flaming up your biosolids and turning them into ash. It takes place in two steps. First, you need to dry the solids to about 15 to 35% solids, and then you can combust them, which will delete about 65 to 75% of the volume of the sludge, which contains the volatile part of the matter. Since the volume of the ash is significantly lower than the original product, it's very cheap to transport and landfill ash, but you don't have to dispose ash in a landfill. There's a few other options that you can use. It can be used as a filler in cement and brick manufacturing, can be used as sub-base material in road construction. It can be used as a daily landfill cover, but you need to pelletize the ash first. 
and it's also used in athletic facilities such as baseball diamonds, arenas, and racetracks. There are two types of landfills that you can dispose in. One is called monofills, which is a sewage sludge only landfill. I've never actually heard of monofills before I started researching this, so they're pretty rare. They're also very heavily regulated by the EPA. Since it is heavily regulated, there are a lot of rules that you must follow if you're gonna dispose in a landfill. You need to have a liner on the bottom of the landfill and you need to follow an entire subsection of the 503 rule to make sure that it's not polluting any of the environment. Biosolids disposed in monofills need to meet class A and class B pathogen requirements. The different types of monofills could be a trench system, an area fill system, or a similar bulk disposal operation, and it usually involves a cover system material deposited over the sewage sludge. So the second type of landfill you can dispose your sewage sludge in is a co-disposal landfill. This is basically a combined biosolids and municipal solids waste landfill. This is a lot more common and there's hardly any regulations for it. I know landfills aren't super happy to have biosolids deposited in their landfills, but it is a legal option that you can take. Just another note, if you use your biosolids as cover for a landfill at the end of the day, that's not considered landfilling, it's considered land application. So the rules of land application follow that part of landfilling. There are three major types of classification that EPA and DNR go by. Pathogens, heavy metals, and vector attraction reduction. Pathogens are disease-causing microorganisms. There are countless types of microorganisms out there, and it'd be very, very expensive to test for every single one to make sure your biosolid sample didn't have any in them. That's why they test for indicator organisms instead. Indicator organisms are either fecal coliforms or salmonella or E. coli, and they represent the probable presence of pathogens in the sample. So we test for those, and if there's a lot of fecal coliforms, a lot of salmonella, there's a high chance that your biosolids could get somebody sick. So there's two different ways that the EPA and the DNR classify biosolids by pathogens. It's class A and class B. Class A is the best type of pathogen densities that you could have. And to have your biosolids classified as class A that you cannot have any detectable limits of indicator organisms in your biosolids. If you're selling biosolids that are considered class A, you have to test the biosolids at the time of sale to make sure that you're not selling biosolids that contain high levels of pathogens. Also, you must meet several pre-treatment requirements. I'm gonna go through those pretty quickly, but if your biosolids are treated thermally in a high pH environment, if they can test for enteric viruses or viable helminthova, enteric viruses are viruses that are associated with human feces. Viable helminthova, does anybody know what that is? Helminth means parasitic worms and ova means eggs. So if you have parasitic worm eggs in your biosolids, then you can't classify those as class A biosolids. Other processes that you can use to have them considered class A are composting, heat drying, heat treatment, thermophilic aerobic digestion, beta ray irradiation, gamma ray irradiation, and pasteurization. And those are usually pretty expensive methods, so that's why not a lot of operators choose to treat their biosolids to get the Class A designation. But those are options that you can take if you want to have a higher cost of sale of your biosolids. The second class of biosolids based on pathogens is Class B biosolids. These do not require time of use testing, but you still need to make sure you test for pathogens based on how many pounds of biosolids that you generate. 
There are some restrictions on biocells, which I'll get into later with the Class B, but basically those restrictions are on crop harvesting, animal grazing, and public access. So if you treat a farm field with Class B biosolids, there are some heavy restrictions that you must follow or the, the person that plants must follow. And I'll get into those a little later, but I'm gonna move on to heavy metals, which is the second way we help classify biosolids. You can have your biosolids classified by the DNR as class one or class two, based on the amount of heavy metal concentrations in your biosolids. There's 10 heavy metals in total. Higher quality biosolids have stricter regulations on the metals. If you have regular biosolids, you just have to meet ceiling concentration limits. Whether they're high quality or normal quality, you still have to meet the cumulative and annual pollutant loading rates for the biosolids. So you gotta make sure that you are taking good records of how much biosolids you're applying to a field and how big the field is, because if you apply more kilograms of metal per acre, EPA finds out, then you could get into trouble. One of the things I wanna highlight in this presentation is record everything that you can, because if you don't have records and four years down the line, someone gets sick and they find out that the field had heavy metals or pathogens in it, you can say, I did all this testing and I applied according to the law, then you can't be held liable. But if you have no records, you can easily be fined and possibly lose your license to practice wastewater operating. Make sure you test your biosolids the amount of times that you are required to by your permit. The final method we help classify biosolids with is vector attraction reduction. In an ideal world, all of the biosolids generated would have zero pathogens and nobody would get sick and we could apply them everywhere, but that's not always the case. So to deal with having pathogens going into farm fields, we have to practice vector attraction reduction to make sure that the risk of anybody getting sick from the fields is reduced. What a vector is, an organism that can transmit a disease to a human. Flies, cows, anything that can get in the biosolids and make contact with a human could possibly get somebody sick, that's a vector. There's 12 total ways that you can accomplish vector attraction reduction, but you only need to do one of the 12. The first category is biosolids processing, and there's nine options. But the second option is physical barriers and that can be done by injecting biosolids beneath the soil surface or mechanically incorporating by disking or covering the biosolids with dirt after you apply them. So as long as you have one of those physical methods or one of the nine biosolids processes, you're good to go for vector attraction reduction. Land application of biosolids is a very environmentally friendly way of fertilizing soil. There's a lot of things that go into land application on the legal side. I want to make sure everybody's aware of those legal requirements before you send your biosolids off without knowing the rules you need to follow. So a quick summary of what I'm going to talk about are the land application uses, the laws associated with it, disadvantages to land application, how you need to report your land application, supplemental information you need to provide on your report to the EPA and DNR, and the five-year plan. Most people probably think of land application as farming and agriculture, but you can also use your biosolids to help with forestry or mine reclamation. I'm not sure the second two are very popular in the state of Iowa, but you can also repurpose your biosolids as a landfill cover. The DNR classifies biosolids as class one or class two, and they both have different requirements associated with them. The class one biosolids are the high quality biosolids and there's a lot less regulations. But you do have to do a time of sale testing, provide an information sheet 
whoever's receiving the sludge containing the name and address of the sludge generator, a statement that application of the sewage sludge to the land is prohibited, except in accordance with the instruction on the information sheet and your annual application rate for the sludge. I'm sure most of you probably don't have class one sludge because the requirements are so strict. So the class two land application requirements are something that everyone should be aware of. Those are all outlined in chapter 67 of the Iowa Administrative Code, which is probably not the most exciting read, but it is important to know what those requirements are. I do wanna highlight a couple of them, and if you're not aware of those, you should try to read that code and understand what they are. Class two land application requirements, you can't apply those to a lawn or a home garden. You can't apply it to a land affecting a threatened or an endangered species. You can't apply to soils classified as sand or silt in the top five feet of the soil. You can't apply it to land with a slope higher than 9%. You can't apply it within 200 feet of a waterway. The list goes on and on. There's a lot of requirements. And when I was helping out another operator and submitting a report to the EPA, I kept having them come back to me and say, well, you don't have this. You don't have this. You're not meeting this. You can't apply here. You can't apply here. I realized, okay, this is probably really important for everyone to understand that you know, if the EPA finds that you're applying to a land that can't be applied to, they can hold you legally liable and either subject you to fines, imprisonment, or loss of your license. So if you are generating sludge, even if you give it to a company to handle all of your waste solids, you're still held liable as a generator. So if they are practicing malpractice with the biosolids, then you are still held liable for what happens to anybody at the end of the day. So just make sure that everything is held on records that can protect you in the future and make sure that you're following everything to the T. Finally, I wanted to go over some Class B site restrictions. Class B, as you remember, are the pathogens that can be detected in your biosolids. If you land apply, you have to restrict public access to the land for a year unless there's a low risk, which can be 30 days. Animals can't graze on the land for 30 days. And if you have food with harvested crops that touch the biosolids, such as stuff below the land surface and you mechanically incorporate, then you can't harvest those crops for up to 20 months. So just make sure that that stuff is not happening when biosolids is on the land because it does put the public at risk. Now I wanna move on and talk about the disadvantages. And I feel like I am talking a lot about the disadvantages because there's so many biosolids that have odor. There are ways to mitigate that during treatment. You can pollute water if the land floods and there's biosolids on the ground. You can pollute streams or rivers. That's why they encourage mechanical incorporation or injection so the biosolids aren't swept away in a flood or a rain event. And you can get people sick, the operators be held liable. Reporting and record keeping. The amount of sludge that your facility generates dictates the amount of times you need to monitor for heavy metals and pathogens. If you produce zero to 325 dry tons of solids, you only have to test once a year. 325 to 1,680 dry tons, you have to test four times a year. If you have more than that, it's six times per year, and even more than that, it's 12 times per year once a month. Make sure you're testing your biosolids the required amount of times to make sure you have as much records as possible. The EPA report that you're required to submit every year if you land apply, the statement that you have to sign every time you submit a report is, I certify under the penalty of law that the class of sludge that I'm applying, the requirements have been met. I'm aware that there are significant penalties for false certification, including the possibility of fine and imprisonment.
If you have somebody prepare your biosolids report as I've prepared for other people or you have a company that can fill out your report for you, at the end of the day, the operator is still the one that needs to sign the report. That's why it's very important to review the entire report and make sure everything on the report is accurate. Along with that very scary statement, you need to describe how you're reducing <laughs> pathogens at your plant, describe how your vector attraction reduction methods are being met. If you're land applying to farms, you say exactly where those farms are, how much land, how much sludge is being applied. There's a lot of stuff that you need to make sure you have good records for. The NPDES-E reporting tool is the electronic tool that everyone's required to use to report their biosolids. I know they have about a three-hour tutorial video that you can watch to figure out how it works, or they have a guide. If anybody has issues with that, there are people out there such as engineers or companies that can help you get through the technical stuff just so you can fill out the report as you need it to. The report is due February 19th of every year, so make sure you don't miss that date or someone's going to call you. If you're not doing any, everything above grade, that puts you liable to more notice. Something else you need to provide is a supplemental information. That includes field maps, records of your application, how much loading of metals you are doing and how you're applying it. If you're using any mechanical incorporation or injection, describe as much as you can because that's going to help you out in the long run. Another thing that you need to have at your plant, your five-year plan for land application. This is something everyone that applies biosolids for land application needs to have. I've worked with a wastewater treatment plant. The EPA did an audit on them and they didn't have their five-year plan and they definitely started asking a lot more questions after that. So if you just have it stuck on a shelf somewhere and you update it annually, have an engineer do that for you, you should be good. Some of the requirements for your five-year plan, you need to have an outline of your sewage sludge sampling techniques and procedures. That's when you send it to the lab. Let them know that every quarter I'm sending it to the lab and this is what they're testing for. It's pretty easy. You need to determine which lands you're planning to apply to in the future. These lands all follow within Iowa and federal code. You need to identify any methods of treatment that you have. You need to identify the names and the owners, the lands that you're applying to, the operators that are going to be working with the biosolids, an overall schedule of when you're planning to land apply, the types and capacities of the equipment required. It's all spelled out in the Iowa Biosolids Land Application Field Guide. It's available online. It's the 2011 edition. It's about 20 pages. It goes through everything your checklist needs to have. As long as you meet everything on the checklist, it's a very important resource to have. I wanted to go through different dewatering technologies. The reason I want to go through dewatering is because it's an economical benefit to dewater your sewage sludge when you land apply. Not only because it reduces the volume of biosolids, which saves on money, storage and transportation, but it also creates a material that lets you compost and it has better quality material for the soil. So it's pretty good to dewater your sludge. If you're incinerating it, dewatering saves fuel on incineration and produces a material that's good for composting. So with dewatering, there's a lot more different technologies out there besides the five that I'm listing. The first dewatering technology is a centrifuge. They're actually pretty cool. They work a lot like a laundry machine. The biosolids are fed in and the coil in the middle spins really fast and that separates the liquids from the solids. On one end, the solids are discharged and on the other hand, the liquids are discharged and it produces a lot higher quality, higher solids material than a belt filter press. They do have some advantages such as low operation and maintenance costs, outperforming dewatering capabilities of a belt filter press, Pretty small footprint 
requirements compared to their capacity. And there's also minimum operator attention when things are running well. They're also very easy to clean. Disadvantages, it does have high power consumption. You also need a lot of experience to make it run very well. It's difficult to monitor how well you're doing because it's basically a metal tube and you can't see what's coming in and out until you're all finished. So you really need to have a lot of experience before this thing will run well. Spare parts are expensive and you need to have the manufacturer come and repair it if there's a serious break. And startup and shutdown can take up to an hour. The next one is the belt filter press, which I've seen a lot of in the state of Iowa. I think it's the most popular mechanical dewatering out there just because it's so simple to use. Basically a belt filter press dewater sludge by applying pressure between the belt and the discs and that presses the water out and creates cake that on average has 15 to 20% solids content. Advantages to this are staffing requirements are pretty low. Maintenance is relatively simple and the wastewater operators can generally perform all maintenance on it. Starts up quick compared to a centrifuge and there's less noise compared to a centrifuge. Disadvantages, odors can be a problem, but those can be controlled by chemicals and ventilation. You do need a lot more operator attention if the feeds solid vary in solids concentration and organic matter. Wastewater solids need to be screened to minimize risk of sharp objects damaging the belt. Belt washing can be time consuming and it's got a pretty large footprint compared to the centrifuge. If you're looking to buy a new dewatering equipment, I think it is worth it to just go through all your options because it may be worth it to get a belt filter press. It may be worth it to get a centrifuge. You just have to look at those operational and capital costs. The third method for dewatering is gravity thickening. Gravity thickening typically takes place in a large circular concrete tank with a conical bottom. Wastewater is fed through the influent pipe of the tank and water is stored in the tank and solids will slowly settle to the bottom. They have these metal scraper arms at the bottom which will collect the sludge in the middle and the sludge is discharged out through the bottom and the water comes out through the top over a weir. It does have a very large footprint and the solids content is only about 4-6% to 6 so not as good but it's an advantage because it's really easy and simple to maintain and there's very low operating cost compared to the centrifuge or belt filter press. Drying beds are another pretty simple process for dewatering your sludge. There's three main different types of drying beds. Your conventional drying bed has a layer of sand and gravel and the sludge is fed through the top. Over time, the wastewater will percolate through the bottom or evaporate off the top, and after a few years, you'll have a high solids product. You can get about 10% solids, which isn't as good as the belt filter press or the centrifuge, but it does require very little maintenance once you get the solids on there. Since rain can be an issue, you can also put a glass or a transparent fiberglass thing on top to prevent any water from getting in there, but that does restrict your evaporation potential. Paved and vacuum assisted drying beds aren't as common. The advantage to the paved is you can drive equipment on it and the advantage to the vacuum assisted is you get a higher solid content because you have a vacuum at the bottom that sucks the water out a lot quicker than just normal percolation. Reed beds are a pretty economical and environmentally friendly way to dewater your biosolids. Each basin needs to have a membrane filter sludge loading system, reject water and aeration system. The presence of the reeds provides mineralization to the organic solid in the sludge. Regardless of the size of your plant, you really want to have a minimum of 8 to 10 different reed beds. If you have too few basins, you run into operating problems such as poorly dewatered sludge residues and poor mineralization. 
and about every eight to 10 years is when you would empty these reed beds. The good thing about having reed beds is you can remove up to 25% of the organic matter and you can produce uh, biosolids with 20 to 40% solids content. It's also very good because it's very efficient at removing pathogens and taking away any hazardous organic compounds. And it also makes a very good option for recycling the biosolids for agricultural land application. Thank you for listening to Snyder & Associates podcast series, a civil engineering, planning, and design firm focused on thinking beyond engineering to improve quality of life within the communities we serve. Find content related to this episode on snyder-associates.com.